And it happened a couple months ago. Thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem embraced this simple idea that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that God had raised him from the dead. And suddenly, Jerusalem is flooded with people from all these surrounding communities saying, God's done something unique among us. God has done something special right here among us in our time and place. And the word began to spread. And we talked weeks ago, we talked about the first recorded prayer of the first century church in Acts chapter 4, which was a prayer for boldness. They prayed, enable me to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. We said that to be bold is to take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. And sometimes we need to create those opportunities. Then we talked about the church's tendency to drift. This isn't a new phenomenon. We talked about the church's tendency to drift towards insiders and away from outsiders. You ever experienced that in your church life? I certainly have. To drift towards law and away from grace. Oh, we could tell our stories about that one. To drift towards preserving rather than advancing. And then we just ask the question, does the church even matter? What difference does it make? And we concluded that the church matters. And the message of the church matters because we've been given the stewardship of the message of eternal life and a better life now. Back in February, we introduced our version of a strategic plan, which we are calling the next initiative. And we got pretty specific on some things on February 1st, and we're still a little cloudy on a few points, but we're figuring that out as we go. Then we took a step back in this series, and we covered some historical events like the ministry of Stephen, his death as the first Christian martyr, uh, the conversion of Saul, um, who was at the time the leader of the persecution of the church, and then his incredible, powerful message. Then Now we know him as the Apostle Paul, his message in 1 Corinthians 15, where he recaps the whole gospel and strips every, all the peripheral stuff, strips it away and gets down to the irreducible minimum. That Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, and he was seen, and that's the gospel. So that's where we've been. Let me tell you where we're going this morning. Back on February 1st, we told you about some conversations that we've been having among our leadership circles about the future faith community. We told you about the weekend back in November with Pastor Buckingham when we crafted a strategic plan of sorts to kind of guide us through the next two to three years. First of all, and this didn't really come out of the consultation weekend with Pastor Buckingham, it just really came out of some follow-up conversations. We decided to tweak the wording in our mission statement. We've always operated with a mission statement, and uh, it's changed, morphed here and there over the years, and we decided it was time to tweak it one more time. We decided to change the wording just ever so slightly, and I don't know if you've ever been part of the process of crafting a mission statement for an organization or for a team or for a business or for a nonprofit or for a church or for a ministry within a church. But it's a tough process, a real challenging process. We just thought that our mission statement ought to be singular in its focus, just a kind of a one-point statement, that here's what we're going to do. So here's, this is our revised mission statement for the foreseeable future. And, and this can change and it ought to change. I don't, it's not an untouchable sacred cow, all right? Here's our mission statement. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ for the good of our community and the sake of the world. We like this because it's simple, it's easy to memorize, it's one main point, to lead people into a growing relationship with Christ. You can know if you're in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that. Oh, and others know that. 
And then here's the why, for the good of our community. That's local. That's why we engage in the life of our community. And for the sake of the world, that's global, because the church is a big deal. It's worldwide. It's so much bigger than we can even comprehend. And it's our global responsibility to be involved and engaged in global causes. So our mission statement is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ for the good of our community and the sake of the world. So let's just go back to the strategic plan we've been talking about. For now, the working name we're giving it is the Next Initiative. And we've capitalized the X for two reasons. Because first, it represents the unknown. I've, as a homeschooling parent, I've done enough algebra in the last few years to know what X represents. We don't know what's next. We know we can't control or predict the future by virtue of six or seven steps on a piece of paper. But we want to be open to whatever and wherever God leads us on this path. The other reason the X is capitalized uh, is, is for this, because there are two reasons. So the first is that X represents unknown, what could be. And because X is the Greek letter chi, you knew that, which is often repre- is, is used to represent, in short, the Greek word Christos, which means Christ or anointed one. So we want to just keep... Christ at the center of everything that we do and all of our planning, because I'm a planner and I love to plan, but we want to keep Christ at the center of that. We want him to be prominent and preeminent. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to quickly recap the next initiative, and then I'm going to zoom in on one concept. And uh, if you haven't heard any of this, uh, stop by the media table in the lobby when you leave today and grab the CD from February 1st. That's when we present the whole plan. Or go to our website, go to the media page, and listen to it there, or get this podcast. We have seven major points where we, uh, where we put some, we could put some meat on the bones on some of these, and others we haven't quite figured it out. We have seven major points. I'm not going to repeat all of it. I just want to give you the major points real quick. and then So here are the seven areas of focus, where we're going to zero in and make some improvements. And we're already, we're, we're, not, we're already do, some of this we've already checked off the list, which is kind of cool. Um, and take some other things to the next level, because we think these are the things that are critical for sustained growth in our church. And we've set timelines for each area uh, so we can measure progress. And then we have some accountability with our elders and with Pastor Buckingham to make sure we're moving forward. And actually, we, we're going to be meeting with him uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time. We're going to go to Sussex, New Brunswick, and have a conversation with him. So anyway, here's focus area number one is involvement. We're just going to list these real quick. So number one is involvement. Number two is assimilation. Uh, number three is celebration. Uh, focus area number four is outreach emphasis. Number five is care ministry. Number six is a stewardship plan. And number seven is establishing measurable goals. Focus area number two is where I want to spend some time this morning, on assimilation. What do we mean by assimilation? Let me just illustrate it this way. About 20 years ago, Rick Warren, ever heard of Rick Warren? How many of you ever read Purpose Driven Life? How many of you been meaning to? Uh, You should read that book. It might just impact you for the rest of your life. Uh, Back about 20 years ago, he released his first book, which is called Purpose Driven Church. And in Purpose Driven Church, he introduced a diagram, which in church leadership circles today, we just call the concentric circles. And as pastors, we all seem to know what we're referring to. And we've decided it's time to kind of go back to the concentric circles and work on some processes. And even though it's been argued, if you just Google Rick Warren concentric circles, you're going to read all kinds of criticisms of Rick Warren and all these megachurch leaders. And it can be argued that he borrowed or stole this idea from corporate America and from marketing and from organizational, organizational growth gurus. Uh, I don't really care where it came from. I think the concentric circles are a great visual and 
I think that they find their, that they're found in the life and ministry of Jesus. I'm going to talk about that. Think about a set of concentric circles. I'm going to put a graphic up in a minute, but not yet. In a, in, in a, in a picture of concentric circles, the circle closest to the center gets the lion's share of our time and energy. And as the circles go outward, the amount of time and energy that we spend with people on those circles decreases. And in Jesus' life, in his ministry, we see five concentric circles. So let's just talk about Jesus' concentric circles, okay? In his center circle is his own, we're going to start at the center and work out, is his own time with the Father alone. So the Father was at the middle of his concentric circles. Uh, I love this, uh, in Matthew 14, uh, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, after a day of teaching and and performing miracles, Matthew says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountaintop by himself to pray. So he wasn't, and it says later that night he was there alone. And I think it's interesting that Matthew says he's there alone, but we know he wasn't there alone. He's in conversation with his father. After he healed a leper in uh, Luke 5, it says, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So in his inner circle, it starts with his father. Then uh, the next circle is going to be what we refer to as his inner circle of the three. The three. And who, do you know who the three were? Peter, James, and John. And we always say it in that order for some reason, but Peter, James, and John. Um, Matthew 17 tells us this. That Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. This is the story of what we know as the transfiguration. It's a remarkable story. You ought to read the whole thing, and when you do, you'll have all your questions answered. Not so. But, but you ought to read it and get a little context and then uh, start asking your questions. I got something I'd like to ask. Then on the night of his rest, the darkest uh, hour, he, he takes his inner three with him to the Garden of Gethsemane in, in Mark 14. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. So we got the Father, we got the three, and then there are the next circle out of the 12 that we call the 12 disciples, um, which isn't, these are people who Jesus called to follow him and learn from him because that's what a disciple is, a follower and a learner. There's so many, so many passages where Jesus and all the 12 disciples are together. Uh, a few of these I love. Matthew 10 is where Jesus commissions the disciples and gives them authority over demonic spirits and authority to heal diseases. And he says this, he says, as you go, proclaim this message that the kingdom of heaven has come near. I love the story of Mark 4, and you know, you know this story, uh, where Jesus tells the parable about the sower, and the disciples don't get it, like, at all. And so after the crowd had left, Mark, says, and Mark 4 says, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. And so Jesus goes on when it's just him and the 12, and he takes the time to explain the parable. That's the kind of relationship they had. Next circle out is the 70. This, we don't hear a whole lot about this group, the group of 70. We only read about it in Luke chapter 10. Uh, in the previous chapter, Jesus had just commissioned the 12, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And that's a parallel passage from Matthew chapter 10. But later in the same chapter in Luke 9, as Jesus is walking down the road, a man walks up to him and says, I'll follow you wherever I go. To which Jesus had an interesting and somewhat confusing response, but in the end, it appears that the man never did follow Jesus. 
If he did, we might know his name. But apparently a good number of people were beginning to follow Jesus because when we turn the page to Luke 10, Jesus is commissioning 70 more disciples. Some translations in the NIV that I use says 72. So Luke says that Jesus appointed 72, this is in Luke 10, 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. They're like his advance team. We don't know everyone who was a part of the 70 or 72, but we do know mostly through historical record but that the group included Luke himself, which might be why he was the only one of the gospel writers to include this story. But Luke was one of them. James, the Lord's brother, we know as James the Just. Um, And he was the epistle of James and the bishop of Jerusalem. There was Mark, Barnabas, uh, Stephen, Apollos, Silas, Philip, Timothy, Philemon, uh, and interestingly, Tabitha, who was one of the first female disciples whose names we know whose name we know. She was, she was raised from the dead uh, by Peter, so uh, that's kind of a cool story. Those are just a few, and there's a whole... You, we, the, pretty much history and historical record has named all of the 70 uh, disciples in Luke 10. Then in Jesus' outer circle are the masses, the rest of humanity wanting his time. And it's kind of hard to narrow down to a few verses the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the masses. But I love this one in Mark 2. This is such a great story. And I remember it from Sunday school in Flannel Graph. uh, But I think it was a lot more exciting than Flannel Graph can really communicate. But a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above by digging through it and lowering the mat the man was lying on. And Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's an awesome story. I would love to have seen something like that. Or this one, Matthew 13. <clears throat> Jesus went out of the house, sat by the lake. That sounds cool. Um, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it and while all the people stood on the shore and he told them many things in parables. Someday I would love to deliver a sermon from a boat and talk to people on shore. That'd be, that'd be pretty amazing um, for me. Um, <laughs> I think it's fascinating to look at the Gospels in light of this, in light of these circles of Jesus' uh, life. Jesus often pulled away from the masses to be with the seventy. He often pulled away from the 70 to be with the 12. He pulled away from the 12, and there were times when it was just the three. And Luke says that often he would go away just to be with the Father. He consistently identified, managed his own relational circles. I've often thought what it would have been like to be one of the disciples, because there were likely more than the 70 hanging around, but he appointed and commissioned 70. I can imagine being a part of the 70 and watching the inner circle of the 12 getting Jesus' time and attention. Because I'm pretty sure I would have been like pretending to like pick up garbage or, you know, collecting firewood or something just so I could kind of eavesdrop in their conversation, you know, in those meetings. It's interesting that sometimes Jesus even walked away from needs. There were times when the ministry didn't seem to be completed and Jesus moved on, like in Luke 4. Luke says, at sunset, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. And at daybreak, sounds like this went on all night, at daybreak, he went out to a solitary place, and the people were looking for him. I mean, the sheer audacity that Jesus would leave needs unmet in order to manage these relational circles. So all that to say that Jesus approached his ministry with a clear view of who was in his relational circles. So 
So he, that, I believe, is, is, a, is a good starting point for, for us in the church and managing our own relational circles. So here's what we think concentric circles look like in the life of a church. So you can go ahead and show that, Josh. Um, we've certainly found this to be true in, in our church. Um, and, and please understand, this is a man-made tool. This is not, you know, infallible, inspired scripture. It isn't perfect, but it's a good visual, and it's a good tool. It's a bird's-eye view of the church. So here we go. I'm going to talk through this. And as I talk, I encourage you to identify where you are, okay, based on some of the criteria. And if it's still, I can't get really completely exhaustive here. I can get exhausting, but not exhaustive. Uh, So if you want to talk more about this, about where you fit and how you move, um, we can talk about that later over coffee. So here we go. On the outside of the concentric circles in the life of the church, we have community. These are the people that we are trying to reach. These are our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, people we do business with, people we go to school with. These are people who are unaffiliated. They don't yet attend church, any church. These are people who don't yet attend any church. They may know about us. They may have friends that attend, but they They're not connected in any way to what we're doing. The next circle in is the crowd. The crowd represents people who come only a few times a year. We'll see some of them next week. They may only come twice a year, Christmas and Easter, maybe maybe one other thing in there for a special event. And still, though, even though they're only thinly connected to our church, they consider our church to be their church. They show up for occasional services and special events. They may be shopping for a church home. Maybe they're just church hoppers where they go from church to church, but they're not connecting with any church. And honestly, I don't ask questions. I don't need to know that. But when they show up, the goal is to welcome them, to engage them in a meaningful experience, and to invite them back. The next circle is congregation. For lack of a better word, that tends to have a religious meaning, but it really is not a religious word. It just means a gathering of people. These are people that attend more regularly. They, may, they come two or three times a month. They may serve on kind of an entry-level team where there's not a lot required of them in their service. So, in other words, there aren't major gaps to fill if they don't show up that Sunday. They may give sporadically when they think about it, but mostly they're more frequent consumers of what we're producing. Next circle in is committed. These people are very involved. They're actively serving on ministry teams. They're actively engaged in personal ministry, like ministry to people, through their own personal lives outside of what anything we do at a church. They're regular givers. They attend most Sundays. They've moved beyond the consumer role into a contributor role. But they're more, of, more often on a team serving than leading a team. Okay? That's committed. Then the inside, we have core. This last group is often, often the most mature spiritually, are often sacrificial givers, are certainly playing key roles in the life of the church. They're leading teams and ministries. They're having influence within the church. They're engaging in conversations with the leadership about future and about vision. The people in the core have not arrived. Okay? Because you think, there, I think that's where I am. I'm there. Yeah, check mark. The people in the core have not arrived. They are actively engaged in the process of becoming the leader God has called them to be, but they are most definitely contributors in every way. That's an overview. Let's talk about assimilation. Assimilation, because this was focus area two in, our, in the next initiative. Assimilation, and everybody here is talking about this. Picture this. Assimilation is the process of moving people from one circle to the next. Moving them from an outer circle to the next inner circle. Always moving people towards the center. 
This does not happen by accident. I've sat by in leadership and church long enough, waiting for it to just happen, to realize that it doesn't just happen. All right? We've got to be really, really intentional. In recent years, we've not been nearly intentional enough about this process. So here's what we're going to do. We are working on a process to identify new attendees and to follow up with guests. We're working on that. Uh, this is why we put a few weeks into updating our, con- our contact database uh, so we can build from there. And by the way, if you missed out on that, there are Connect cards within arm's reach and a chair around you and a pen there. If you'll fill out the Connect card, uh, you can keep the pen as our gift to you. I know, right? It might even work. Um, <laughs> But really, we'd love to, we've still got a few gaps in that, so we'd love to just get everybody's contact info. But we needed to have a baseline, so we want to start with that, and then um, we can utilize this Connect card more effectively and create meaningful communication with people. Then beyond identifying new attendees, we are developing a system to track attendance and follow up absentees. Over the years, we've done a few attendance studies, and they're short-term things. We might do it for like a quarter, where we track every individual attendance over a period of weeks. It's tedious. It's challenging to do it discreetly. Um, by the way, it's already been done today, and you may not have even noticed. Uh, did you know we take, are taking attendance today? Uh, if we know your name, uh, you're on a thing, and if not, you're just guest number one or through 72. <laughs> that process requires that at least one or two people know everybody in the room. Um, and if you're not a people person and you don't remember names very well and, and you're having a hard time even staying with me right now, um, I challenge you to become a people person, to begin to learn names, to begin to know people's stories. Don't just settle there. Like, I could, well, I can't be on that. I can't help you with that process because I, I just don't, I'm not good with names. And you're content with that? So I'm off my notes now, but uh, I would just challenge you to become, become better with names. Names are huge, you know? Um, just, it, it is, it goes to the core of who you are. So over the years we've done this, we've talked to several other churches about how they do it. The churches that actually do it have developed their own processes, and we've discovered a method that's working for us, uh, but we're improving it and working on it. Then after we've taken attendance, because we're not talking about numbers, we don't just count heads. Uh, we're talking about names. We, we are trying to account for each individual in, in the building on a Sunday morning, and after we have that information, we're trying to watch for patterns, because it's really, really easy. Once a church is over 75 people, it's really easy for people to fall through the cracks and nobody knows. Amen. It's really easy, because not everybody's personally connected with everybody else. So we're trying to watch for patterns, and, uh, and we're trying to follow up with people who may have missed, and we're trying to find a way to do that that isn't annoying. Mm-hmm. So we apologize. We're still working on that. Um, in recent weeks, we've been developing and implementing a system to track these attendees. And in fact, today, we introduced the kids' ministry check-in. It was the first week to do it the way we're doing it, and that's a step in the process. It gives us great data, uh, and we can, we can generate all kinds of uh, information on that and helps us keep people from falling through the cracks and just kind of sliding out the back door. The biggest challenge for us in, 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 in improving our assimilation process is actually developing a track or creating connecting environments to help people move from one circle into the next circle. I think it's important to note that in these circles, there are no barriers between the circles, okay? If you could just picture little bridges all over the place from one circle to the next, all right? I thought about doing that, but it would get a, to be a really busy uh, graphic if we did that. So just, uh, there, there, we need to create as many bridges as possible to move from one outer circle to the next one. And uh, here are some ideas that we're working on, and we, we're just starting to have these conversations to get super intentional about this. But to move from, for instance, to move from community to crowd, to take that first step, 
we believe the most effective process is what we call invest and invite. And this isn't original, but it's good, so we stole it. We're using it. And we, th- we talk about this. Uh, we've talked about this extensively recently. And in this setting, a, week, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about it. Uh, it was in part eight of this series, which was, I don't know, a month ago. If you missed it, grab the CD, listen to it online, invest and invite. It's the idea of intentionally investing in the life of someone outside the church, maybe even far from God, with the purpose of eventually, someday, inviting them into the right church environment with the expectation that they can meet some Christians, they can experience God in a church environment, they can have some spiritual and relational needs met, and maybe even become a follower of Jesus. We still have some Invest and Invite cards on the table, on the media table in the lobby. Uh, When I talked about this a few weeks ago, I asked you to write down the names of three people in your circle of friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, who our Heavenly Father would consider lost. And I don't mean that in a condescending, derogatory way. I mean lost like the parable, parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. They were considered lost because they had so much value. And after you'd written those three names in the card, I asked if you were willing to commit for the rest of this year to invest in these relationships with the goal of inviting them into an environment where they would hear the gospel and be given an opportunity to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, I wouldn't recommend telling them that they're on your invest and invite list. I don't think that's always a helpful thing. You know the people better, but they might feel like a project or a target, but it's up to you. (laughs) Inviting them into an environment where they'll hear the gospel. You know what? Hey, this might be your home. might be around your kitchen table. It might be a small group or a Bible study. It might be a women's group or a youth group. It might be sitting around talking about a series on TV on Wednesday nights in the church talking about this. It might be here on Sunday morning. But I asked you, would you do that? Because if you don't, we might as well pull the plug. Uh, But if you do, who knows what God can do in and through this church? We asked the question, would you be a searcher who's actually searching so that we can be a church of searchers who are searching so we can partner with our Heavenly Father in searching for those who He considers lost? To move from crowd to congregation, um, if that's you, how do you do that? I, I'm just going to give you the first step. First of all, just keep coming. Just keep attending. Get to know some people. Uh, serve somewhere. There are all kinds of opportunities for you to serve in this church, even if you're kind of there, on the, if you feel like you're on the peripheral. This is a great way to get connected um, and make some relational connections. Get into a connecting environment, some kind of smaller group. Uh, so that's what things like sitting around the table at breakfast, Women's ministry on Saturdays, um, the AD series on Wednesday nights, sitting around a table with somebody and making a connection. Um, And then to move from congregation to committed, um, these are just examples. I would just say stay engaged. Stay engaged enough to understand and embrace our mission, which is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, and then get involved in ministry teams that require something of you. So get involved in a team where if you can't make it, there's a gap to fill. Okay, um, get involved in something that might require a little sacrifice of your time and energy and your own comfort. To move from committed to core, we have a lot of people in this church who are, I would say, between congregation and committed, between committed and core. But if you're, if you're committed, to move from committed to core, I want to encourage you to position yourself to move into leadership on the teams where you serve. Just step up and say, hey, can I, is there anything I can do to help you lead this team? You can count on me. I want to take more responsibility. At which point, after we have been revived uh, and come to, uh, we will have a conversation. Because you don't hear that. Idea. I'll take, I want to take more responsibility. I know, it's crazy talk. But help lead in some connecting environments. Um, Connecting environments are where you experience biblical community, um, where you get to interact with truth. And then for those of you who are in the core right now, 
You're like, there, I've arrived, I am there, I know that's me. You haven't arrived, none of us have. It's on us to take personal responsibility for our spiritual growth, to grow deeper as people, to grow more effective as leaders, and to expand our influence. That's on us. The heart of evangelism, because really that's what this is, because it starts in that outer circle. The heart of evangelism is a desire to move people from community to the core. Sure, I mean, that's part of it. Ultimately, the goal is not just to get people into the church and to move them through these different categories. The goal is not to grow the church so we can have a big church, so we can do things that big churches do. The goal is not any of that. The goal is for the kingdom of God to move forward, to have an effect in our community, to make a difference in the lives of the people that we are doing life with, to make a difference in the here and now and for eternity. That's the heart of evangelism. And the church is a means to an end. It's the tool that Jesus left to accomplish his purposes here on earth until he returns, to build his kingdom here, now. And most of the time, the first step is to move from community into the crowd, to get our friends, family, coworkers, neighbors in the door in this door, through your door to your small group, through the door into an environment where they'll have the opportunity to interact with some other some Christians as they interact with the truths of Scripture, as they serve one another, as they serve our community. I really I just encourage you to join our relay team and invite your friends outside the church to join our relay team and hang out for 18 hours with a bunch of crazy church people. I just encourage you to do that. Um, this is about giving people the best opportunity to meet Jesus to experience a growing relationship with him, and to become a fully devoted follower. Evangelism is not a responsibility or calling for a few trained professionals. It's the, and, and you're like, well, I'm not really called to evangelism. Let, it's the unrelenting responsibility of every person who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to evaluate your relationships Examine your circles of relationships. Identify those people in your life in need of Christ's love and salvation. And until we intentionally evaluate that, we may not realize how many people God has put within our reach. So just evaluate your relationships, and then we need to work with God through prayer. Prayer isn't just a warm-up exercise before you do your spiritual work. Prayer is intimate fellowship with a holy God who desires close and frequent time with his children. And through these intentional and frequent times with our Heavenly Father, you will grow in wisdom, you'll grow in discernment to recognize opportunities that you have to introduce someone to Jesus. Pray that God will engineer some circumstances in your friends' lives and in your life to draw these people to himself. Here's the thing about evangelism. Evangelism, this whole process of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, is not an either-or proposition. It's very much a both-and idea. Here's what I mean by that. You may have a hard time with the very idea because you, we are hardwired to love either-or scenarios. We love choosing sides. You are either a Republican or a Democrat, or you, in this state you may be unenrolled, but you vote the same way every time, so we know who you are. Your favorite, your favorite color is red or blue or green, not rainbow. All right? You, you watch CNN or Fox News, but not both. You are a fan of the Red Sox or the Yankees, but not both. In the church, there are lots of things that we should take a stand on, okay? Where it certainly is an either-or proposition. But when it comes to evangelism, this process of bringing people in from the community, bringing them into the next circle, in the crowd, it really ought to be a both-and. Here's what I mean by that. This tends to be 
there, 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 there tends to be an exclusivity at work in our mindset. It's either a come and see approach or a go and tell evangelism. So come and see is event oriented. It's Easter Sunday oriented. It's Sunday morning attractional oriented. It's marketing and advertising and branding. Go and tell tends to be thought of as a personal evangelism, a friendship evangelism, a lifestyle evangelism, and introducing your faith into the context of your relationships with unbelievers, with the not yet Christian. So people tend to ask me, because I have these conversations with people like me, which do you ascribe to? Do you think the church should adopt a come and see approach or should it be a go and tell strategy? Which is it? And the answer for that is so easy. It's both. It's both. It's both come and see and go and tell. From what I've discovered when I read the gospel accounts, that's what Jesus did. Jesus created attractional events. And if you think he didn't, you haven't really read the Gospels with that mindset. The large crowds gathered to see what was happening. I mean, people being healed and miracles and just stuffing yourself with a couple pieces of bread, you know. And so he did that. And he stopped to talk to people one-on-one, people like the woman at the well, people like Zacchaeus, people like Matthew. Evangelism is investing in relationships, inviting your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors into an appropriate church environment. So evangelism is getting them in the door so they can experience the community of a group of Christ followers, so they can experience our worship, so they can hear the truth of Scripture, so they can have an opportunity to cross the line of faith and begin a relationship with Jesus. And we want everything we do at Faith Community to be aimed at moving people through these circles, to get every person into the committed, in the core, where they have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. Here's the thing we know to be true. Our church is perfectly designed to produce the results we are currently experiencing. I'll just repeat that. Our church is perfectly designed to produce the results we are currently experiencing. Think about that. The reason a strategy isn't working has nothing to do with the weather. It, has, it can't be blamed on a full moon. It's not the economy. So what's the bottom line? It's the way our church is designed, strategized, prioritized. If we want different results, we've got to change the design. And we're more than willing to do that. We just don't always know what needs to be changed. And sometimes it takes a little time for us to get it. And what needs to be tweaked and what needs to be radically altered and where do we need to pull the plug altogether. But... As leaders in this church, we're willing to ask the hard questions. We're willing to hear honest answers. We're willing and excited to make changes to better position us to accomplish God's purposes for us as a church. And when it comes from, to, to, to moving from an outer circle to the next circle toward the center, we've got to think steps. We've got to think process. It's highly relational, and it can't just be totally programs. L- let me just try this visual. Let's, I just brought a ream of paper with me today. Um, let's say you wanted to get from where you're sitting, way back there, um, to the stage. This may not really work for you, Dan. Um, but if I, if I took this stack of paper and threw it up in the air, or if I walked around the room and dropped sheets of paper all over the place, and then told you you had to step from one piece of paper to another to get from there to here, you might be able to do it, but your steps would take you all around the room. Some of you would require, uh, it might require you in some of those steps to hop pretty far. Uh, you might have to stretch impossibly far to get from one piece of paper to the next. You might have to backtrack a little bit to make it to where you ultimately want to be. It, it, it probably wouldn't be a very simple process. You with me so far on that? Can you visualize that? Because if you can't, I could just throw some paper out there. But 
I don't want to pick it up. But if I took this ream of paper and carefully laid the sheets out so that the path led directly to the stage, from your seat to the stage, and if I laid them close enough together to make it easy to step from one to another, we could make it. Here's the thing. Steps in this process of assimilation, of moving people towards the center, they need to be easy. You need to be able to make it from one sheet to the next. They need to be obvious. You need to be able to see which one to take next. And they need to be strategic. You need to be, uh, they need to lead to the right goal. The concentric circles, which you're going to see a lot of, are really what the process of discipleship, of discovering what it is to be a follower and a learner, to be fully engaged in life in the kingdom of God on earth here and now. It all begins with evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember last couple weeks ago, or last week, he died for our sin, he was buried, he rose, he appeared. Evangelism is lived out through intentional relationships. And without committed Christians leading the way by investing in relationships and praying and sharing Christ in the context of friendship and, and, and boldly speaking about Jesus and bringing friends to the right church environment and making a commitment to follow up, without that, everything else we do will be pretty ineffective. If we move everyone in the church today from the crowd, through the congregation, through the committed, and we move everybody in the room eventually through the circles and eventually into the core, but we abandon the commission of Jesus to move lost people from the outside into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and everything else we do is pointless. Let me just say this and I'll be done. One of the commandments Jesus gave his followers was to love one another. And he told them that by loving one another, they would attract those who were not yet following him. John 13 35 says this, says Jesus' words, by, everyone, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We call that biblical community, to love and be loved, to know and be known, to serve and be served. Evangelism, this process of sharing the good news of Jesus, is a living example of biblical community. And this is huge in our culture because everyone wants to feel and be accepted and loved, not condemned and judged, especially by the people who are supposed to be representing Jesus. And it's still true that sometimes, you know, you want to go, everybody knows your name. And if it's true at a fictional bar on TV in the 80s and 90s, it's certainly true in the church uh, today in the work and process of bringing the lost into a relationship with Jesus. I really struggle with how to wrap this up today. This is the conclusion of a 10-part series that we've been in since uh, November. It's spanned like five months. Um, At times, we got really specific. We got really into the nitty-gritty of church life here at Faith Community. At times, we wrestled with some really big theological concepts from the book of Acts. I hope there's been a clear message for our church. I hope there's been a significant takeaway for you on a personal level, too. For weeks now, we've been playing this video by the band uh, Ren Collective Experiment, the song Build Your Kingdom here. And if we'd known we were going to do it for 10 weeks, we probably would have learned it as a band. But uh, we've come to really like some of their music, even though we're still, a lot of us, totally confused about how to clap to it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know who you are. Um... I don't know how many of you have ever noticed the camera that's mounted right there. And we have, we've got some great video. Of, <laughs> there is a camera. We don't record anything. So anyway, I want to lead you in a prayer. And then we're going to stand together. And we're going to turn up the volume. And if all, everything works correctly, we're going to sing the song together. Uh, so let's uh, tell you what. Would you join me? And let's just stand together right now as we come to God in prayer. <clears throat> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled today 
when we step back and realize that it's people like us that you've chosen to be responsible for the message of the gospel, to be stewards of the, of the message of Jesus, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose, that he appeared. We're humbled to think that you've chosen people like us to carry this message through generations and through hundreds of years. We're humbled and we're grateful. So God, I pray that you would give us clarity as participants in the life of this church at Faith Community. Give us clarity about how you want us to function in your kingdom here in this area in our community. We want to build your kingdom. We want to be part of what you are already doing. Show us when we've become obsessed with building our own kingdoms. We repent of that today. We want to be invested, fully invested in what you are about. God, I pray that the words of the song would be our, that just be our heart's cry to you today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's play the video, crank it up, and let's sing.